Italy's wine regions offer plenty of variety to pair up well with whatever you're eating. Beautiful soppressata from the Irpinia region or Sanio together with a glass of Taurasi. Or a good Chianti, elegant, not so tannic, with a beautiful Florentine steak. If you can't visit in person, travel to Italy in its popular songs. It's a song about the beauty of the Gulf of Naples and the beauty of the Neapolitan lifestyle. O sole mio, o my son. America has developed a community of domestic travelers. Journalist Jessica Bruder joined the ranks of itinerant RVers and campers to see how they make ends meet by traveling the country looking for temporary work. It's an incredible culture and a really, really resilient, creative, fiercely independent, and protective culture. The risks and rewards of American nomads and the wine and songs of Italy. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. There's a kind of migration across the United States that we rarely talk about. Coming up, we'll meet the reporter who joined the ranks of the people who crisscross the country in RVs, vans, and trailers looking for low-wage temporary labor as a way to make ends meet. It's the real-world story behind the new movie Nomadland, a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. To start, I thought we could all use a touch of the simple pleasures of life as enjoyed in Italy. A band from Orvieto has fun with the popular songs people like to request in Italy in just a bit. Let's warm up with a virtual sip of the great types of wine they've been producing for centuries. Our guides are Francesco Grunke. He's a licensed sommelier from Tuscany, and Alberto Vitali specializes in farm and food tours in the Campania region around Naples. Francesco, Alfredo, benvenuti. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Nice to have you guys here. Clearly, Alfredo, Italian wine and, and vineyards are an important part of the, the tradition of Italy. And you're making your own wine now, and you've got tour groups that come and, and, and experience the wine. How do you teach an appreciation of Italian wine? Well, actually, I'm, I just implanted my vineyard only two years ago, so we are not yet at the stage of producing and also of having uh, groups arriving. But in the future, I plan to do so. And uh, I am not the only one who's uh, starting a new vineyard in my region, which is Campania. And um, precisely, my vineyard is in the area of Virpinia, which is close to Avellino. It's actually in between Avellino and Benevento. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a process that many young people in Campania are starting to do again, like going back to the land that families had abandoned for many years when they moved to the cities to work there. Now many people are thinking it's a good idea to restart producing, implanting new vineyards. But being not a professional of this sector, I can only implant a limited a quantity, which is called in Italy personal use quantity. I know this what sounds is the, something how many, else. How many, bottles, <laughs> how many bottles is uh, personal use? It's not in terms of bottles, in terms of surface you can, uh, you can. it's like actually uh, 1,000 square meters maximum. Oh, so that's quite small. Then. Yeah, it's small, it's like 9,000 square feet. And, and how, how many bottles could you produce? In a you year? can produce out of that probably uh, 700, 800 bottles, something like that, depending on the years and the quality. Just enough for you and your friends. Exactly, that's the idea. That's personal why use. I planted, yeah, personal use. That's a lot of energy <laughs> you're putting into wine. You must really love wine. I love wine and also, well, actually, 
I started in the same plot, which is bigger. I started with the olive trees. I, I implanted 120 olive trees seven years ago. Mm. And then I thought that wine and olive oil is a good combination. That's nice. But you work all of this, put all this energy, all this money into that. You make 700 bottles. What if the wine's not good and you love wine? It would be a, a pity to to drink mediocre wine when you've got great wine all around I know. you. Well, that's uh, that's a little bit, you know, of, uh, of a challenge. And also, yeah. I'm not making my, my own wine. I'm going to get people that make really wine. You're going to have some me. expert help. Oh, yes. That's totally, right. totally. Okay, well, I'd love to hear how that goes. Yeah. When will you uh, pop open your first bottle? I'm going to start probably really producing in a couple of years from now. All right. And when we think of Italian wine, what makes Italian wine special compared to French or Spanish wine? Well, I, I would say um, French and Italian can be comparable in terms of uh, variety and high quality. And this is actually what happens every year, this fight in between Italy and France, yeah. uh, you know, to, to be the, the best right. one for the year and uh, in terms of production, quality and varieties. Uh, the, the, the Spanish wines are getting better and better. I used to live close to Spain for a while in the 90s. I was in Toulouse and I will go often over the border and uh, drink some good uh, Spanish wines. They are improving, but I will not say that there is as much uh, variety and as much quality that we have in these uh, two countries, Italy and France. Right. And as um, talking from uh, the Italian point of view, there is a, really a lot of variety. Like everything else in Italy, wine is regional. In every region, you have specific varieties, which are With a very specific good. personality. Exactly. And also, in each region, you can go through the different levels of quality. Yeah? For example, in my region, sure. Campania, we have five top wines, which are the DOCG ones. And uh, most of them are white, but we have also the Taurasi, which was the one mm -hmm. I um, named to you before. Historically, we know a lot of table wines, a lot of simple wines. You know, Chianti, uh, in Spain, they would produce a lot of wine, but not a lot of fine wine. I think that the trend in the last generation is going to less wine, but higher quality. Would you say that's it true? It is totally general. It is, uh, it is uh, for sure. Be Italy. Because Chianti used to be this, uh, the meaning of a simple wine, and now it's, uh, it can be a fine wine, a Chianti. Totally. Totally. Yeah. You can have very good Chiantis nowadays. And then there's another thing I'm curious about. A government can set a system where there's a few big wine growers, or there's many little little family wine growers from one country to the next. Have you noticed in some countries there's more little wine growers and in some countries there's only big wine growers? Uh, it's much more related yeah. with uh, the economy of the region. For example, very simple things. Northern Italy, Trentino Alto Adige, many producer that doesn't make any wine. They just sell the wine to the cooperative. Tuscany, many producer probably 80% incredibly small, 20% bigger. But all of the people that make grape in Tuscany, they also produce wine because they can sell easily. Their wine is from Tuscany. So if it's from Tuscany, it has an advantage in the market. Yes. Francesco Granchi is a licensed sommelier who offers tours of Tuscany from his home base in the medieval hill town of Volterra. Alfredo Capasso Vitale specializes in food tours and farm visits in the Campania region of Italy. That's the area that surrounds Naples and includes Salerno and Mount Vesuvius. They're bringing us a tasting of the wines of Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We have more with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Francesco and Alfredo, I'm just going to go through the regions, and if you could tell me the personality and your favorite wine from that region, because every region has a different personality. Tuscany is maybe the most famous. 
What, what would you say one of the top wines and, and what's special about Tuscan wines? Oh, there are a few which are really the top wines of Tuscany and and also of Italy actually uh-huh. coming from uh, from Tuscany. I do like Bulgari a lot, which is not so famous uh, like it is Brunello, Bulgari. Because you pay extra for Brunello, I think. Exactly. The yeah, yeah, the Brunello and you know, there are the, the ones which are considered top wines. Uh, Bulgari, it's not really a top wine, but some of those are really very, very good. And it's, I really like those, for Bulgari. example. And Piedmont. Piedmont is up in the north, and I think a lot of fine wines are, are Piedmontese. Francesco. The Barolo of Piedmont is the king of the Italian red, of course. So that's uh, the Barolo. We see that Barolo. Barolo. Barolo, This fantastic grape called Nebbiolo. Oh, so it's the grape, Nebbiolo. The grape is Nebbiolo. What is Amarone? Where is that from? Amarone is from Veneto and is a blend of many grapes, Corvina, Corvinone, Rondella, Morinara, born by a mistake. These are things that almost mm-hmm. nobody know, but it's really curious. Was that a good mistake or a bad mistake? It's a good, a good mistake, mistake because the idea in the area was to make sweet wine with the grape of the Amarone. Yeah. And uh, it seems that the wine markets forgot these grapes on the fermentation vat for longer time. So all of the sugar was eaten by the yeast and transforming alcohol. So, so the yeast took the sugar? Take the sugar and, to, and make alcohol and carbon dioxide. Right. So the wine was no more sweet because the sugar was finished. And they said, they, they said, oh, this wine is amaro. Amaro means bitter. Bitter. And said, actually, is amarone. It's very bitter. I so like amarone. If, if, a, if a restaurateur wants to make me happy, I say amarone. Now, when you think of Tuscany, the competitive state next to Tuscany is Umbria. Does Umbria have good wine also? Oh, totally. They have very good wines, both for red and whites. My, I prefer red, so maybe for me, a good Sagrantino, for example, from Umbria. Sagrantino, is a so remember that wine. word. If you go to Assisi, have it, a Sagrantino. Oh, yeah, totally. That's the best one to have, especially what you can eat in Assisi, which is usually venison, uh, mushrooms, truffle. Sagrantino with that is just perfect. So and remember, ta- wine and food go together. You're talking together. about the good marriage there, the wine and yeah. the food yeah. in a zero kilometer way. Exactly. And in the slow wine uh, perspective, Carlo Petrin is teaching to all of us what is this philosophy, and yeah. it's a very important philosophy. If you're going to have cheese and prosciutto, if it comes from the same region as the wine, that's something to look for. I think so. Now, the, the province around Rome is Lazio, and uh, there's actually some a good wine in Lazio. Now they finally start to produce fantastic stuff in mm-hmm. Lazio too because uh, the soil is very mineral, so with the modern technique of vinification mm-hmm. they can make fantastic stuff. And until a few years ago, they used to produce a lot of wine, mm-hmm. but not so, so good. Yeah. Yeah. What about Sicily, way uh, down in the south? Sicily is the new Burgundy. Sicily. The new Burgundy. <laughs> yeah, oh. in particular the Etna, the Etna region. Is so the this is the volcano. You've got uh, the black soil exactly. from the volcano. Exactly, like that, we do, like we do in Napoli too. We have some production up Mount Vesuvius. Ah, Mount so Vesuvius. Yeah, those ones are really nice. And the one in Sicily, actually, I prefer to the ones of Mount Vesuvius. I have to be honest, even if I'm from Napoli. You're from Naples, and you prefer I know, Sicily. I know. Oh, I, do, I do. I do. The wines from the, there are better. Etna I have to be honest. I have to be honest. <laughs> this is travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking wine with two wine lovers from Italy, Francesco Granchi and Alfredo Vitali. Let's close with not only your favorite wine, but your favorite wine paired with your favorite food. Okay? Just like you would have in an enoteca. I love to go to an enoteca and you drink the wine that is paired with the food that the wine expert has put on small plates. That, for me, is a beautiful dinner and I'd rather 
spend a lot of money for a glass, just a single glass of great wine with the right pairing of food. Alfredo. If I am in Campania, if I'm in my region, I would say a beautiful soppressata from uh, the Irpinia region or Sanio together with a glass of Taurasi. If I am, uh, let's say, in Umbria, I would say a glass of Sagrantino together with tagliatelle with mushrooms. I love that. Tagliatelle with mushrooms and a Sagrantino. Yes. And I I want our listeners to remember this word Sagrantino because I went crazy when I tasted my first Sagrantino in a nice restaurant in Assisi. It was, it was a flames and it dancing is, girls is, in my it head. It is very, very good. Oh, yeah. All right, Francesco. Well, I can say something from uh, Tuscany. What I really like is, uh, for example, a stew wild board with Brunello di Montalcino. That's uh, a good opportunity to use the word corposo. Yes, yes. Full-bodied. Yes. yes. Corposo. Full, they're both full They're both. You can't get more full-bodied <laughs> than that. Than a wild uh-huh. board. <laughs> Or a good Chianti, elegant, not so tannic, with uh, a beautiful Florentine steak. Nice. For example. As, uh, the, the beautiful beef. And, and don't underestimate Chianti. There are some Chianti today that are fantastic. Oh. Yeah. Alfredo Vitali from Napoli. Francesco Gronchi from Volterra. Thank you so much for sharing your, your, your passion and your expertise for Italian wine. Mille grazie. Thank you. A presto, grazie. Thank you, Rick. In a bit, we'll explore the world of today's nomadic retirees who travel America full-time in RVs and camper vans. But let's linger in Italy a while longer for a virtual party, complete with some live music. And I'll let you in on what scared me off the first time I tried to visit Naples as a teenager. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If the wine in Italy makes you feel like singing, our next guests know plenty of Italian folk tunes and pop standards you can request from the band. In fact, David Torty is the lead singer and guitarist with a group called Bartender. He and his bandmates Gabriele, Svedonio, Tardiolo, and Valerio Bellocchio came to our Travel with Rick Steve studio from their home in Orvieto. That's a popular stop for wine lovers in the countryside between Rome and Tuscany. They joined us last January, just a few weeks before the worldwide party was put on hold for a while. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Thank you. I don't think of Italy for traditional folk music, but of course there is traditional folk music in oh, Italy. Yes. What should we know about folk music in Italy? Folk music, like any other aspect of the country, is very diverse in uh-huh. Italy. There are schools that are very, very important, especially the Neapolitan one is the most popular one. So and when I go to the Naples area, Sorrento, you go to yes. a folk show, what is it called, the Tarantella? Is that... Tarantella, Napoletana, yes, using a specific um, melodic scale called Napolitan scale. It's a musical scale that alterates a couple of notes and... Uh, it makes the sound a mix between Western music and Middle Eastern music. Oh, because of all of the influences that have yes. come in over southern Italy and so on. We can give you a quick example, if you like. What's an example of Neapolitan? Oh. 
Oh, I, I feel it's a romantic evening. I've got a, a, a bottle of local wine, and yes. it's uh, Sorrento. Yes, it's, definitely. It's uh, Amalfi Coast, Positano. Positano, see. If you're thinking of another region of Italy, what would be uh, represented in traditional folk music? For example, another beautiful region of Italy that has an incredible tradition is the area of Genoa, Cinque Terre. Oh, so that's up in the north? Yes, northwest. The school of Genoa is considered to be another very important folk and also popular music of Italy. What would distinguish that? How would that sound? Do you have an example? First of all, the language. Uh-huh. The language is completely different than Neapolitans. For example, yeah. there's a song in uh, Genoa that I love very much from Fabrizio De André that's all written in ancient Genoa dialect like this. Umbre de muri, muri de mane Dunde ne veni dove le cane Danci tu du valuna se mostranu Sounds like Portuguese. Yeah. So if, if I was a, a Roman and I heard that song, I would go, oh, that's from the Genoa area. You, yes. You would know that. And you would not understand most of the words <laughs> as now a That's Roman. something a lot of travelers don't recognize, that there are these strong dialects and this, the regional differences would also show themselves in the musical styles. What's another iconic sort of folk tradition in Italy? Oh, another one, for example, could be the Roman. Roman folk music that uses a very strong, thick Roman accent. For example, like this one. Guys, follow me. Yeah, yeah. vita minamara, me so comprato sta guitarra, e quando il sole scende muore. Me sento ancora cantatore, la voce è poca mantonata, non basta fasta serenata. Nice. Now, I just, that is so beautiful because for a moment I was in Trastevere at a little, at a little Osteria, and that would be the Roman style. Yep. Yeah. This is so fun. So we've, we've heard music from Bellinopoli, we've mm-hmm. heard music from Genoa, we've heard music from Rome. Would there be two more regions that we can do? For example, Sicily, in Sicilian language, not even dialect, it's a language, so yeah. Sicilian would be... And then the maidens come out in their traditional dresses and everybody is having their Sicilian good time. Yes. When we go to the far north of Italy, we have German culture. Mm-hmm. And I know in the Dolomite, you've got almost this German schlager. Yes. Almost like the boys yodeling or something yes. like that. I cannot personally yodel because I'm not from Austria or South Tyrol, but I love yodeling, listening to yodel. It's another dimension. Oh, yeah, completely. And the Veneto? Veneto, see. What, what would you have in Venice? Uh, Venice, uh, the traditional Venetian music is kind of lost. Venice is more related to classical music, you know, to... Oh, that's right, the Vivaldi, yeah. the Four yeah, Seasons, see. this sort of thing. Or even the style of the Rondò Veneziano, the Venetian Rondò, it related to the classical music world. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Tordi and his band Bartender, who flew all the way from Rome to join us here in our studio and give us a demonstration of traditional folk music in Italy and how it varies from region to region to region. As performers in Italy, entertaining travelers and tourists, 
Is it just boring, almost painful to have to play volare all the time, to have to play Old Solo Mio and Santa Lucia? What is it like to be a musician? And, you know, every tourist wants to hear those songs. It can get boring if you play it like a normal song, but the way Bartender, this band, rearranges music, it's engaging. Let's just, mm-hmm. David, you will introduce each one with a little bit of um, cultural background. Yes. And let's just have a little medley. I'll let you play three or four touristic cliches, but give them a bartender twist and a little context as a good tour guide, okay? All right. What's number one? Number one is should be Volare, the most yeah. famous song, Italian song in the world. Dove è Sì. Okay. Penso che un sogno così non ritorni mai più Mi dipingevo le mani e la faccia di blu Poi all'improvviso venivo dal vento rapito e incominciavo a volare nel cielo infinito. Volare, oh, cantare, oh. di blu felice di stare qua su oh is, is volare is it just hollywood or is it actually does it have italian roots volare no no it's a it's a song written in 1958 but and sung by domenico modugno one of the best italian singers so it's a hit in italy it's a big time hit and oh, okay. uh, in our cavalcade of italian music what's next for example we could do um tu vuoi fare l'americano yeah yeah what is that? To, you want to be Americano. Tell us this. Is the that a, story, yes. a story about... Of course. Just very briefly. There is always a story behind the song. In fact, this one actually has a great story. After World War II, the Americans and the English, for example, were seen as heroes, especially by the young kids. So in the 50s, lots of the kids from Naples, a big city that was liberated by the troops, started lo- dressing up like the Americans, so wearing a baseball hat, a pair of jeans, some rolled-over uh, sleeves with a pack of Marlboro inside the sleeve and so on. And the song is about that. You want to pretend to be Americano, you be but Americano. you were born in Italy. You, you were know, born in I've Italy. even got some friends in Europe that were named Frankie and Johnny that were born during those years because they wanted to be Americano. Exactly. Let's hear it. Yeah. Porte uno stemma Ma cupulella che vi si era aizzata Passa scampagnano per tu leda Con mano qua popete fa guarda Tu vuoi fare l'americano, americano, americano Senta me chi tu fa fa Tu vuoi vivere alla moda Ma se bevi whisky e soda Quando senti disturbare so you want to be Americano. I like yes, that. But you're not. But so. you're not. <laughs> you can play rock and roll, you can wear those jeans, but you're an Italian. You can swing it, you can do whatever you want. But <laughs> That's great. Okay, so another one. What, what about... Well, Sole Mio, it's a song about the beauty of the Gulf of Naples and the beauty of uh, 
the Neapolitan lifestyle, o sole mio, o my son. Okay, that, so this would be from the Naples area, Tarantella yes. sort of culture? Yes, Tarantella culture, o sole mio is more like a Neapolitan ballad. Okay. And it's a love song. It's a love song not only about another person, but also about the city of Naples. Very briefly, the words, so when we hear you sing in a town, we'll know Que bella... What does it mean in English? Que bella cosa, una giornata di sole, what a beautiful thing, a sunny day. Naria serena dopo la tempesta, serene, pristine and serene air after the tempest, after the storm. After the storm. Yes. And o solo mio, literally, what does that mean? O sole mio, o son of mine. Sun, the sun. O the sun of mine, celebrating the sunshine. Yeah, sunshine, Twinkling on the sea, bringing the lemons to be fresh. Sta in fronte a me, in front of me. Ah, oh, the beautiful sun. Let's hear it. O solo mio. Che bella cosa Na giornata sole Naria serena Dopo la tempesta E l'aria fresca Pare già una festa Che bella cosa Na giornata You know, David, when I'm listening to your band, Bartender, I'm realizing that as a tourist, it's easy to write something off as just touristy and kitschy, but there is a cultural basis for it. The checkered tablecloths, the woven wine jug of Chianti, O Solo Mio. Italians can sway to that, just like American tourists. Yes. This has been beautiful. David Torti, Valerio, Gabriella, Bon Lavoro, Mille Grazie, and next time I'm in Orvieto, I want to check out Bartender. Grazie, Rick. Thank you. Next stop is Naples, 1973, on Travel with Rick Steves. Strolling through Naples, I remember my first visit to the city as a wide-eyed 18-year-old. My travel buddy and I had stepped off the train into the vast Piazza Garibaldi. A man in a white surgeon's gown approached me and said, Please, it is very important. We need blood for a dying baby. Naples was offering a dose of reality we weren't expecting on our Italian vacation. We immediately made a U-turn, stepped back into the station, and made a beeline for Greece. While that delayed my first visit by several years, I've been back to Naples many times since. And today, even with its new affluence and stress on law and order, the city remains appalling and captivating at the same time. It's Italy's third largest city, as well as its most polluted and crime-ridden. But this tangled urban mess still somehow manages to breathe, laugh, and sing with a joyful Italian accent. Naples offers the closest thing to reality travel in Western Europe, churning, fertile, and exuberant. With more than two million people, 
Naples has almost no open spaces or parks, which makes its ranking as Europe's most densely populated city plenty evident. Watching the police try to enforce traffic sanity is almost comical. But Naples still surprises me with its impressive knack for living, eating, and raising children with good humor and decency. There's even a name for this love of life in the street, Basso Living. In Naples, I spend more time in the local neighborhoods than in the museums and palaces. Since ancient Greek times, the old city center has been split right down the middle by a long, straight street called Spacanopoli, Split Naples. Just beyond it, the Spanish Quarter climbs into the hills. And behind the archaeological museum is perhaps the most colorful district of all, Sanita. Walking through the neighborhoods, I venture down narrow streets lined with tall apartment buildings, walk in the shade of wet laundry hung out to dry, and slip into time-warp courtyards. Couples artfully cuddle on Vespas, while surrounded by more fights and smiles per cobblestone than anywhere else in Italy. Black and white death announcements add to the clutter on the walls of the buildings. Widows sell cigarettes from plastic buckets. I spy a woman overseeing the action from her balcony on the fifth floor. I buy two carrots as a gift, and she lowers her bucket to pick them up. One wave populates six stories of balconies, each filling up with its own waving family. A contagious energy fills the air. I snap a photo, and suddenly people in each window and balcony are vying for another shot. Mothers hold up babies. Sisters pose arm in arm. A wild-haired pregnant woman stands on a fruit crate holding her bulging belly, and an old wrinkled woman fills her paint-starved window frame with a toothy grin. Paint a picture with these thoughts. Naples has the most intact ancient street plan anywhere. Imagine life here in the days of Caesar, with street-side shop fronts that close up to become private homes after dark. Today is just one more page in a 2,000-year-old story of city activity. Meetings, beatings, and cheatings, kisses, near misses, and little boy pisses. The only predictable elements of this Neapolitan mix are the boldness of the mopeds, concerned residents will tug on their lower eyelid, warning you to be wary, and the friendliness of shopkeepers. To cap my walk, I pop into a grocery and ask the man to make me his best ham and mozzarella sandwich. I watch, enthralled as he turns sandwich-making into a show. After demonstrating the freshness of his rolls with a playful squeeze, he assembles the components, laying on a careful pavement of salami, bringing over a fluffy mozzarella ball as if performing a kidney transplant, slicing a tomato with rapid-fire machine precision, and lovingly pitting the olives by hand. Then he finishes it off with a delightful drizzle of the very best olive oil. Six euros and a smile later, I find the perfect bench upon which to enjoy my lunch while watching the Neapolitan parade of life stroll by. An older man with a sloppy slice of pizza joins me. Moments later, a stylish couple on a bike rolls by. She sits on the handlebars, giggling as she faces her man, hands around his neck as he cranes to see where they're going. I say, Bella Italia. My benchmate says, no, Bella Napoli. I say, Napoli. It's both beautiful and a city of chaos. He agrees, but insists, Bella chaos. I ask, tell me, what is Napoli in one word? 
Turning his head, he watches a woman stride by. Then, with a long string of mozzarella stretching between his mouth and what remains of his pizza, he chews for a moment, pauses, and says, Abondante. I agree. Naples is abundant. This look at the bella chaos in Naples is taken from the 100 essays from a lifetime of travel that I've compiled in my newest book, Rick Steves, For the Love of Europe. You can call them travelers, nomads, modern American gypsies, or even work campers. Jessica Bruder tells us about her time with the people who spend their retirement years in RVs and trailers as they travel the country. Often, it's to find seasonal work to help them afford to live. Hear what it's like to survive in nomad land. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. For some Americans, an extended road trip in an RV or camper trailer has become a way of life. That's because it's all they can afford. Many of them are looking for temporary and seasonal work because their diminished income after retirement just isn't enough to live on. Journalist Jessica Bruder followed this itinerant workforce up close. For two years, she logged more than 15,000 miles in her own converted van and stayed in campgrounds and actually worked alongside them. Jessica profiles the people she met in her book, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. It's just been adapted into a major motion picture of the same name. Jessica, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Whoa, what a phenom here, this Nomadland. I I didn't realize there's a whole parallel society of people who are generally older that are working to subsist, moving from place of employment to place of employment in RVs. What, what is the basis of this? What is going on in our country where we have this sort of change in the economic design of things, especially for people in their golden years? Yeah, all sorts of stuff is going on. I mean, when I used to see RVers, I just assumed that they were the last of the great pensioners going to Old Faithful or Niagara Falls and just tootling around and enjoying themselves. But the more I learned when I started looking into this is, If you think about it, we've seen so many things that have made it difficult for people to retire happen in this country. We've seen pensions give way to 401ks, which put a lot of risk on workers rather than on employers. We've seen the Great Recession decimate people's savings and often basically just cause the housing equity they plan to retire on evaporate. We've been in a culture where for such a long time, wages have been stagnant. I mean, our federal minimum wage is $7.25, which still blows my mind, Mm -hmm. incredibly low, while the cost of housing are increasing. Consequently, people who don't have a pension to support them, cost of housing goes up, but their income doesn't go up. Their income probably goes down, and they end up homeless, looking for work to supplement a meager Social Security. What do people make per month uh, on Social Security? 
Oh, it's all over the map. I believe the average is around 1200 but I met people who are making 500 or less. So you can't live on 500 a month. So that, no. that sort of helps out, but you've got to get out there and at 750 an hour or whatever you can manage, supplement that. Absolutely. And for people who are lifetime low wage earners, since Social Security is based on your lifetime of wages, people just, you know, they're not going to get a break once they're older. In your book, you call it give up the stick house and hit the road and search Stick and brick is what the RVers call it. Is that right? Stick, stick and brick. brick. Yeah, to distinguish that from their homes. So they, these people will not call themselves homeless. They call it houseless. And that makes perfect sense to me because they've got transportation and shelter. You just brought something up earlier, Jessica, about there's no more pensions, but now there's the uh, 401k. Explain the dynamic of that. What was the situation with pensions? What is it now with 401ks? Why was that change made and, and what the consequences? Unfortunately, I think it was a pretty cynical move and it was marketed as 401ks were marketed in the 80s as an instrument of financial freedom. This kind of you pick your destiny, you're free, go forth, Americans. But when pensions were the rule of the land, they were made on basically a defined benefit sort of schedule. So you knew what you were getting. It was up to the employer to make sure that you got that. And really, under the guise of freedom, that risk was outsourced to the shoulders of the worker as 401ks became the rule. So if you're an impoverished older person who wishes you were actually retired with an income, you could feel like you've been scammed out of your pension and into 401ks that doesn't do it for you because you never made enough money to put that away. Yeah, absolutely. Is it a triumph for the employers? It's absolutely a triumph for the employers. And it's part of the erosion of the rights that the labor movement has won for us over the past decades. I mean, who who remembers the 40-hour week? It already seems quaint, right? I kind of feel like retirement is going the same way. And So what's going on with retirement now? Because retirement used to be a different thing than it is today. Today, uh, Americans over 65, a lot of them still have to work. Yeah. And we're living longer and longer. And a really interesting phenomenon I saw, too, was a lot of older single women on the road. And when you think about it, again, because of the gender wage gap, women's lifetimes earnings lower than men, so they get less social security. They spend a lot of time out of the workforce doing unpaid labor as caregivers. They live longer than men. So it's pretty incredible. There's a lot of solo women out there. So there's a lot of people looking for temporary work to supplement their social security check that can't afford a home and they're living out of an RV. Roughly how many people are we talking Okay, so this is a really challenging number to address because everybody is, quote-unquote, domiciled somewhere. To get by in America, you need an address. You need it for your driver's license, your insurance. So I would guess, just anecdotally, based on things from employers, we're talking at least tens of thousands, and that's a conservative estimate. Jessica Bruders, our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. Not long after her book was released in 2017... Jessica drove to our studio in the GMC camper van she fixed up and called Van Halen. Her website is jessicabruder.com. That's spelled B-R-U-D-E-R. Jessica, how did you get into this? And tell us about how you learned about this once you were inspired to go out and write this book. I'm a journalist. I do a lot of reading. And back in, oh gosh, it was 2011, there was a really scrappy paper, the Allentown Morning Call, came out with a report about temperatures rising to 110 degrees in an Amazon warehouse. And instead of putting in AC, they had ambulances outside to pick up people when they dropped. And a year later, I was reading more about warehouse work. And there were one paragraph, two paragraphs tops in this article 
where somebody said, hey, I'm in this Amazon warehouse because I'm here with a special program for RVers and I can't afford to retire. And the story moved on, but I didn't. I was like, wait a minute, what is that all about? So I learned more about the program, started doing a ton of research and found out that this program Amazon runs called Camper Force was just a small part of a much larger ecosystem, thousands of employers coast to coast and up into Canada hiring this incredibly mobile population in an environment where the mainstream workplace, these folks might face a lot of ageism. And suddenly here is a network of employers that's welcoming older folks with open arms. So let's talk about that a little bit, because uh, if you are an employer and you hire a temp worker, there are some advantages. Uh, they don't organize, you're not dealing with unions, you don't have a, a lot of uh, perks and benefits you've got to give them, certainly no health care. And uh, it can be seen as an employer as a very easy way to fill the the spikes in the demand of labor in your work economically. Absolutely. Uh, Amazon might have a huge demand for labor at Christmas time and less elsewhere. So all these itinerant laborers will realize, hey, this is the time to go to Amazon now. And then in the summer, it might be agricultural work or something like this. Give me the description of this, what Amazon would call camper force. Sure. But also it's worth noting that this is just a tiny part of the fact that so much of our workforce is going towards independent contractors right now. And why is that? Because it's so much more beneficial for the employers and an employer's market to not have to provide benefits of any kind and to have at-will employees where you really don't need any reason to terminate them. It's just the ultimate and flexible workforce. At-will employees. What does that mean exactly? At-will means you can be terminated without cause. So many of these work camping jobs, the folks are working at will. They are told you will probably get X amount of hours a week. Mm -hmm. And often they travel great distances to reach the job. And if the employer decides that they're no longer needed or they just feel like cutting them, there's no obligation mm. to deliver on the work. So what are some examples of sources of employment for itinerant uh, senior laborers? There is the Amazon Camper Force. That is something that exists in the four months leading up to Christmas, mm -hmm. where people do pick and pack on 10-hour shifts in the warehouses. Make sure you've got good sneakers. You could be walking 15 miles a day or more on concrete, which is not so nice on an aging body. Now, would this be kind of a 9-to-5 shift, or do they do it at different times of day? I went undercover and did the overnight shift, which turned people into what they referred to as Amazombies. <laughs> Amazonbees. Amazonbees. like midnight to 8 a.m. or something. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was all through the night. It was all through the night. So just one shift comes, another shift goes. Yeah, absolutely. The warehouse does not ever okay. shut down. So that's one big, big source of temp work. What, what are some other examples? There is the annual sugar beet harvest up in the Red River Valley. People work on ground crew. You're shoveling sugar beets out in the cold on a 12-hour shift. Uh, that's pretty intense as well. There are people guarding the gates for Texas oil fields. There are people doing campground hosting, which is a really interesting one because it looks very quaint and the jobs are often advertised as something that kind of feels like summer camp, like, hey, you're getting paid to go camping. But in this kind of camping, you're cleaning toilets three times a day, you're shoveling out fire pits, you're dealing with rowdy campers, hmm. and you're only allowed to invoice for a limited amount of work hours when, in truth, you're on site uh, for many of these people 24-7 because you're living there. So if somebody wants to buy firewood from you at 2 in the morning and they're banging on the side of your rig, good luck telling them no. How would somebody who's looking for workers spread their news and how would somebody who's looking for work mm -hmm. network and, and know what's out there? Are there magazines? Are there websites? Uh, how does all this connect? Yeah, there's a website called Workers on Wheels. There's another site called Work Camper News. And they solicit advertisements from tons and tons and tons of employers. There's also just a huge word of mouth network. People who are work camping 
get together on Facebook and in all sorts of online digests. The man who ties the Christmas tree you buy to the roof of your car, the woman who cleans the toilets at the campground you stayed in, they might be among the thousands of work campers Jessica Bruder got to know. She researched the lives of Americans who live in RVs and campers by joining them in her own converted camper van. Jessica's book, Nomadland, made the New York Times list of 100 notable books in 2017. It's now been adapted into a movie starring Francis McDormand, David Strathairn, and a number of actual people Jessica met on the road. The film won the top prize at this year's Venice and Toronto Film Festivals. Nomadland is scheduled for general release on December 4th. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Nancy's calling from Sandwich in Massachusetts. Hi, Hi Nancy. I was just wondering, how did people view you, or how does society view this? Like a vagabond, or just, you know, normal people using a camper and traveling? Well, Nancy, it's really funny you use that word because I just remember when I met one of the women I interviewed for the book, she said, you're going to make us out to be a bunch of homeless vagabonds. So that concern of stigma is definitely there, particularly with the ongoing criminalization of homelessness all over the country where people are being told they can't sleep in their vehicles in cities all over the place. So I think it really depends on what strata of the community you belong to and what rig you're in. I know a woman who lives in a van and was speaking to a bunch of folks in sparkly new RVs around a campfire. And when they asked her, what kind of rig do you live in? And she said a van, they actually left their own campfire. Wow. So there is stigma and there is prejudice out there. And I think depending on how old your rig is and what you're doing with it, it can be a real challenge. Well, thank you for your answer. Thank you for your call, Nancy. Adair is calling from Los Angeles. Adair, thanks for your call. Hi. Yeah, I'm wondering how many of these people might have considered becoming expats and moving to other countries. I'm sure they might not have the means to get to the other countries, but, you know, like Mexico has a lot of expats, and I know Cuenca, Ecuador is really high on the list. In other words, Adair, if you have a a humble retirement here that doesn't quite pay the bills, you could move south of the border and live more comfortably on that X amount of money per month. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering if, if these people have considered that or did you get into that at all? And and if you know much about the expat community around the world of American seniors. Well, I know it's growing and I think it's fascinating. And one little area of overlap, which isn't quite what you're asking, is I know tons and tons of people who go to Mexico to get their dental work done. People pretty much yeah. going there in caravans. But I think for a lot of these people... It's a matter of what the startup costs to actually get out there would be like that largely would put it out of reach. Mm, okay. What about tiny houses? Well, in a sense, these are tiny houses on wheels. They're tiny houses without utility costs, without property tax. There's definitely some overlap there. And those tiny houses can roll to the uh, seasonal sources of income. Absolutely. Adira, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jessica Bruder. Her book is Nomadland, talking about surviving in America in the 21st century if you are older and your retirement doesn't quite make it. You went undercover, and and you were sitting around campfires probably telling stories and sharing ideas with these people. In what way is it a culture? In what way do they relate to each other in ways that we might not? Sure. Well, for what it's worth, I never went undercover when I was just out there with people. I only went undercover when I was in a closed work environment, like the Sugar Beet Harvester Amazon. Whenever I went and spoke with people and was out there in my van, they knew exactly what I was doing. Mm -hmm. They're civilians. (laughs) Right. I I treat them accordingly. But I've got to tell you, 
It's an incredible culture and a really, really resilient, creative, fiercely independent and protective culture. I was really impressed by it. So people get together online, but people also get together in person. And they, at one particular event that I attended for three years in a row as part of my research, uh, it was called the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. And people are doing seminars teaching each other how to boondock, go off the grid in the national parks, how to stealth camp without getting rousted by police in cities, how to get affordable dental care in Mexico and often joining each other on field trips to go down there. How so to you could carpool it down to Tooth Town south of the border and better get believe your it. fillings done really the cheap. The Molar City. <laughs> <laughs> the Molar. That's fascinating. You went to a convention, uh, itinerant labor convention, and they had all these, they're smart people that are living out of their RVs for financial reasons. They're brilliant people. Yeah. And some of them are working and others have just made their overhead so low that they can pretty much go financially dormant. There's a whole mix. Do employers provide kind of a campground for the trailers if if they need to encourage more people to come? I mean, I can imagine an employer thinking, this is great, we need 500 workers. They would want to have a place where people could plug in. Do they actually create these trailer towns that are temporary workforce hamlets? Yeah, so in the case of Amazon, they had briefly spoken about building their own, but I think found it was easier to contract with RV parks in the communities surrounding their warehouses. Mm-hmm. And and keep in mind, for some of these jobs, I was up at the sugar beet harvest. An RV park can be a bit of a euphemism for a field with electrical plugs in it. So basically, you need a so, place to park and plug and to, in. And to plug in. That's Absolutely. all you, that's all you that's need. That's what you get. Let's talk about the reality of people who, when you're in your 70s, especially when you're in your 70s doing hard physical labor in a lot of cases, uh, you've got the reality of health care and, and your, your body is falling apart and you don't have more money, you have less money. What is the reality when you're 75 and going to work every day, standing and moving things around and hoping the employer doesn't notice that you're not able to do it physically uh, and that you're having to sign away your rights so you can't you know, complain to your employer that you got injured? What kind of empathy did you gain for people in this situation? Oh, a ton, because I've got to tell you, when I was out there undercover on a couple of these jobs, my body hurt. And I was 37 at the time. I met people who were, again, walking 15 miles a day on concrete floor and getting plantar fasciitis. I met people getting trigger finger from using the handheld scanner guns. I met people getting slip and fall injuries on the slick floor at the beet harvest. People getting hit in the head with uh, cardboard boxes at Amazon just... It's incredible the persistence of these folks, and this is a generation that doesn't really abide complainers, so you're not going to hear them whine about it. They get up and do it again, and I think that's why the employers like them so much is because of that can-do attitude. Jessica, normally when we have an interview, I like to to end on something really happy and uplifting and inspirational, but uh, I don't know, to me... You got somebody who's 75 years old and having to, you know, work from midnight to nine in the morning at some Christmas rush, you know, discount retailer. And then five years go by and you're not getting stronger, you're getting weaker. You're not getting richer, you're getting poorer. What is the end game? Is it, is it only sadness? It's not only sadness, but I've seen my fair share of sadness. There are a couple people I talked to for the book who are no longer with us, and a woman I talked to all the time was recently parked next to an RVer who was having a tough time. He was also a bit older and low on cash, and she didn't see him for a couple days, and then there were flies on the screens, and she called the police, and he was gone as well. So while I have seen people get off the road... And I have seen people find other things to do. It's a really complicated picture. And I don't want to give away the end of the book, but it actually doesn't have 
a super depressing ending. There's something kind of cool and happy that happens, but I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> well, Jessica, whether there is a, a happy final chapter or not, I just think it's really important that you've drawn, um, that you've raised awareness of this dimension of our country as we as a nation struggle to to give people the opportunity to work hard and, and have uh, dignity and self-respect, uh, especially in their, in their golden years. Jessica Bruder, the book is Nomadland, and thank you so much for learning about this and sharing it so eloquently. Thanks for having me here. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Casmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kitnikon. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more to the show on our website at ricksteves.com radio.